This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts at propercloth.com. Ordering custom shirt has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions, no tape measure required. Shirts start from $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. For a premium quality and perfect fitting shirt, visit propercloth.com and use gift code MANLINESS to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Again, propercloth.com, gift code MANLINESS to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. While meat makes up a big portion of Americans' diet, few people know very much about how meat is sourced and butchered for consumption. Today on the show, I talk to world-renowned third-generation butcher, Pat LaFrieda, about all things meat. We begin our conversation talking about his family business in New York City and how he became one of the premier meat packers in America. And then Pat walks us through how the steak you're grilling got there and all the factors that determine the price of meat. So we get very macro with butchering. We then shift from the macro to the micro of meat by discussing the tools, pack records, recommends every backyard chef should own, how to tell if meat is bad and what dry aging does to beef and whether you can do it on your own at your house. He then shares what his favorite cuts of beef, lamb, and pork are, how to cook them, and why he thinks you should be leery when a restaurant boasts about their delicious sirloin steaks. Really fascinating show with a lot of interesting tidbits. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash butcher. Pat LaFrieda. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you are a, a world-famous butcher. You just came out with a new book called Meat, and I love it. My kids love the books. They love looking at the cutouts of the different animals, of <laughs> the cow, the cross-section. Yeah, you don't see that often. You really don't. Um, usually when you Google a, a cut of meat, you're usually dir- directed to a photograph that looks like a cartoon of an animal to a general area. So I really thought it was important to segment each cut exactly where it lies in the animal. Yeah, my kids love it because now whenever we eat a hamburger or steak, they know what part of the cow it comes from. That's great. It's been fun. Well, before we get to the book and talking about meat in general, let's talk about your history background because it's really interesting. You're the owner of a of a famous meat fulfillment company. You're not a butcher for like the average consumer. You actually give meat or provide meat for all the big restaurants, steakhouses in New York City. How did that happen? How did you get started with that? Well, um, I represent the third generation. I'm also Pat LaFrieda the third. So my dad took over from his father and my dad didn't have a choice. He was to be in the meat business. And that's just the way that generation was. My grandfather's generation wanted the, their son to carry on their business. My dad, he wanted the opposite. He sent me to private school, off to college, and wanted me to go off and do something bigger and better. The problem was that in order to teach me work ethic, he would take me to work since I'm 10 years old. And I loved the business. I loved being the helper on the truck and getting to go down and speak to the chefs and just knowing what happens in the kitchen. It, 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 it's amazing. If you can imagine the perspective of, of a child going into a kitchen and all the wild things that happen in a kitchen for a kitchen to work. When I graduated with a finance degree from college, I got a job on Wall Street almost immediately. And I got my Series 7 in 63, which made me a licensed broker. And I could not stand doing that for a living. Um, I begged my dad to come into the family business. He told me, nope. 
no reason for you to come here. Uh, it's not why I sent you off to get educated. Uh, it was a little bit of a family bout. My, my aunt had come to my defense and she had run the business with my dad and was retiring. And she was a very tough lady. May she rest in peace. Her name was Lisa LaFrida. And she convinced my dad to let me join the company. And we were very small. We only had two vans that made deliveries. My father essentially was the head butcher and had an assistant. And they had 44 customers. I would go to work at 3 a.m. I would work with my dad cutting meat like I knew and was trained to do and slowly grew the business by by running up to a shower, changing into a suit after the meat was cut and the driver left to make his deliveries. And I would walk into restaurants and actually get new accounts and get and we grew the business really organically, grassroots in that regard. Yeah. And what's crazy, uh, during the 80s and like early 90s, this is when the meatpacking industry in New York City was you know, saw a downturn. What do you think helped the you know, Pat LaFrida meat purveyors thrive, not only survive, but thrive during that time to become this you know big juggernaut that you are today? Well, I'll tell you, I joined my dad in 94. And when his dad passed away in 89, I could see my dad did not have interest in growing the business anymore. Like that was, and I think that's part of the reason he didn't want me to join the business. That was for their generation and the generation before my dad's. But if you had a meat company in the meatpacking district, there are almost none of those companies that owned their own building. So they were all renting. And some of these leases were 20 or 30-year leases. But there came a time when the meat market became a discovered secret treasure. And the real estate values went so high that if you didn't own your own building, when your lease was up, you were done because you couldn't go from $40 a square foot to $1,000 a square foot. You just could not. There's not that kind of return and, and net profit in this industry. So my dad always wanted to buy his own property and control his own destiny. So the fact of his genius of finding a location down in that area and purchasing it, when those rents did go up very quickly to unaffordable numbers. Here I was in a company protected by the ownership of the building. So that was a massive, massive key component to us surviving that period. Art galleries and restaurants where meat, where raw meat used to be hanging is something that no one envisioned that was in our industry. Uh, but my dad did. Yeah. Wow. So you mentioned earlier, you know, your day when you were you know, working with your dad would start at like three o'clock in the morning. How late were you, would you sometimes work to? Oh, we would, we would often be done around 5 p.m. Wow. And I mean, I imagine that the work is pretty physical. Very physical. And you have to be able to work in a refrigerator. So 
for anyone that's never felt that before, you know, 35 degrees, 36 degrees, you know, for the entire, your entire workday, it, it, it does take something to, like experience to get acclimated to. I find the largest turnover rate with new employees is within the first two days. If they can last the first two days, they understand that, okay, once they get moving and working, I'm going to warm up. Before you know it, you're going to strip a layer or two off before the end of the day. But that fear that, and it's not talked about very often, but there is a fear in someone that gets put into a work environment that's refrigerated. And you have to get over that fear and realize, okay, this is, this is normal. This is okay. So how does butchering work? Obviously, meat comes from cows. Let's talk about cows in a good example. Like, do they? Well, let's talk about steer. Steer, yeah, steer. Well, let's talk about the difference. That because this is the biggest, I think, misconception that the general public has is that everyone thinks that beef is cow, where where cow is is a a female milking cow is in the dairy industry. So. Cow meat does exist, but we we have opted out of that with USDA. So our company doesn't handle any cow meat. And the, the difference is in the age. So anything that's over 30 months of age, we don't touch. And there's a reason for that. The 30 months of age or more can potentially have BSE, which is mad cow disease. It's never been detected in anything less than 30 months of age. And that's where we get steer. So the steer that we use are on average 22 to 24 months of age. So that's that's the difference. When a cow is in its eighth year of giving milk, that's usually about, about when they'll send it to be harvested because that meat has a place in the marketplace as well. It's just going to be the lowest form of meat because it's older, it's tougher, it doesn't taste as good as steer do at 24 months of age. So if we're talking about steer, how does the steer come to you? And like, what do you do with it after that point? When, when I first started, we were still using hanging meat on rails and kind of like the movie Rocky, where Rocky was punching the meat and it was hanging from a hook. That has changed in my generation. So that is a good change because meat that can fall and hurt someone just to take that danger out of, out of the scenario. And it was a great thing, but the beef industry has changed in such a way where it, it actually follows the, the most capitalist example possible and in a good way. And what I mean by that is, in my dad's generation, if he wanted to sell two whole strip loins, that would yield about, let's say, 24 steaks. He would also have to sell the rest of the animal. And where, where do you sell the whole inside round, bottom round, beef, eye round, the chuck, the neck? Like You have to sell all of those parts and have no waste because it'd be a sin to have waste to begin with, but you wouldn't you wouldn't be profitable at all. Farmers actually have to even take into consideration what the hide would be worth and what is worth in the leather industry at that time. 
So how it's changed is that meat at the processing facilities in the country is broken down into the different cuts and equations get formed. Uh, so if there's a huge demand for ribeye, a price will be set for it at a high price, and that would lower the price of everything, every other cut in the animal. And it would go by demand each week. It changes, obviously, but that's the way pricing structure works. So I only need to bring in the cuts of meat that I need. And that's vastly different from a generation before me where my dad would never be able to grow the business in fine dining like we have. He would have to, we would have had to get rid of the rest of the animal. So for example, inside rounds make great roast beefs. It's the muscle that we are all sitting on right now. Uh, so roasting that, that should really go to someone who's processing roast beefs. Whereas I need more of the middle meats, the strip loins, the the ribeyes where, where we get cowboy steaks and tomahawks. I need more of that meat. And the only reason I'm able to get it is because the person who wants the inside rounds is able to get it, get that delivered to them only. And they would have no use for the steaks that I would have use for. So it's become a very sustainable and and more importantly, more efficient system than my dad's generation. And does this the same apply to pork or lamb, the same sort of thing where they you only get the cuts you you just need? Yes, it does apply to to lamb, pork, veal, just like it does in beef. But you'll find that most people eat beef or poultry and then less lamb pork, and so on. So you'll get more efficiency in the beef industry than you would the pork industry when it comes to being able to buy individual cuts. How is what you do different from, say, you know, what the neighborhood, the corner butcher does, right? Um, you guys don't serve like specific cons individual consumers. You guys more focused on restaurants. Well, yeah, our, our entire history was based on selling restaurants. Now, an amazing supermarket chain, ShopRite, did approach us last year and and they were big fans of our product in restaurants and wanted to see how it would work on their retail shelf. Because what a retailer would normally carry is different from what we do. So dry-aged prime steaks is not something you'd normally find. And they were shocked. They actually were had three times the demand for our product than what their most optimistic forecaster saw in, in, in what our, our success would be in, in the general public. So specializing in the top 10% of what's produced in our country has really given us an edge in that. So having beef procurement people on the ground, speaking to the growers, who are the farmers, about exactly how we want and what we want our beef to be as far as raising protocols and finishing protocols. That's taking it almost to the point of being vertical. We wouldn't want to be vertical in our situation because if there's bad weather in one part of the country and very little beef came from that part, we would be out of business. So 
having the ability to spread across the Corn Belt and to work with different farmers in multiple states, really, and and then getting the top 10% of product that comes from those growers is really the key to our success. And you know that did not take overnight to happen. It took many years of what's very important. And I think it's probably true in, in any industry is uh, we made sure we paid our bills before we ate. So my father could not sleep if he thought he owed someone money. And if you're willing to pay someone uh, and that, that's a huge problem in, in our industry. I'm, I have an entire floor of personnel and all they do is try to keep our restaurant customers current. And it's not easy for the restaurants to do so, but we work with them a lot. But as a restaurant may get 30 days of credit from me, I have to pay the growers within seven days. And that's seven days from when once it leaves the facility in which it was harvested. I don't get it for about four days after that. It's on the road in a refrigerated truck. So three days after I get the product, the product's paid for, and I still have to sell it and then collect the money for it. And regardless if I've collected or not, I have to pay my taxes as if I did collect the money, which is very, very difficult. And we've had our times when you know, we have to you know, go back and use our own personal money. It's been quite some time since that's happened. But if, if you're not careful, you, you have to pay your taxes. It's something that we also take very seriously. So if, too, if your restaurants get too far out on you and, and, and there's too much in receivables, then you won't be able to pay your, your meat bill in seven days. Then the farmer doesn't want to hear from you. That's it. If you get blacklisted in that industry, you're done. And it's something that we worked very hard and always thought about is that we need to make sure we pay for our product and make sure our farmers get paid before we eat. It's very simply said in my family. Yeah. Well, I imagine it's a tough business too, because weather can affect price. I remember a few years ago when there was some drought in Texas and Oklahoma, the price for leather and for beef went up dramatically because all the cows were dying. Yes. And they were- and cow, I mean, I mean steers. I just said cows again. In those years, there was an amazing amount of corn production. So that's what's kept beef affordable is that finishing them off on corn that's inexpensive, even in, even through those droughts, corn production was great. I think you could see it more in poultry. Poultry right now costs a little bit less than when I started with my dad in 1994 full-time, which I think is remarkable. And I think it's what's kept food pricing and the inflation of food pricing where it is we all see the difference in what our grocery bill is, right? I think the one thing that, that has that has kept it even affordable is the availability of corn in our country it plays a huge role in in the industry and in pricing. So let's talk a bit about your book and some of the tips you're providing. So what I love about it, you you look at each type of meat, 
You've got beef, pork, lamb, you have veal. And not only do you talk about the different cuts, which I find extremely useful, but you also provide some recipes. Let's sort of talk big picture here. I know a lot of guys who listen to the podcast, they like to cook outdoors, grill, and particularly they're probably grilling meat of some sort. What tools do you recommend that people have on hand for all their meat preparation and meat cooking needs? I would say as a butcher, <laughs> the biggest people love to show me their knife set. It's, it's kind of comical as a guest over anyone's house. Like, Hey Pat, look at the, these knives I bought from this maker. And I'm, I, as I look through them, none of them are, are meat knives. So I, to have a, 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 a knife, which we call a boning knife that debones, let's say a leg of lamb or a rib of beef to a, a longer scimitar knife to cut slices off of a whole strip uh, or to cut some beef into maybe stew. It's important. It's ve They're very different from a chef's knife uh, or a paring knife or something that's made for produce. So that's, that's the first key tool you need. The biggest issue I see in, in, in grilling is when you have a grill that is not able to get to the temperature in which you want. And that's a big debate. What's better, natural gas or charcoal? Of course, charcoal tastes better. But if you have the hours that I do, which translates into very little amount of time that you have to barbecue, I need gas. I got to cook with gas. I got to get that that grill up as as high as I can, as fast as I can. I, I don't have time to play with charcoal, you know, every time I grill. If I did, I wouldn't be able to grill anywhere near as much as I do. So I think having a grill that's able to reach the temperature that you want and the time frame that you that you want. Recently, I found a grill. I, I, I almost didn't even look at it. It's the size of a toaster. And kind of looks like a toaster without the door. It's made in Germany. It's uh, made by Otto Wild. And it's restaurants would call it a salamander or a, um, a cheese melter where the heat's only coming from above. And it has this great tray underneath that you put a little water in first so that you never get a, a flare up. There's no fire ever. So if you are cooking a great quality cut of meat. It mostly has a lot of intramuscular fat. So that's the marbling you see. It's going to lose some of that fat in the cooking process and leave behind a great tasting steak. Um, but to be able to do it in a manner where you don't have, you know, this huge flaring up when you're trying to get a sear on, on, on meat is very important. Otherwise, what you get is the steam effect. You get that gray steak that's gray throughout because you, you tried to get some color on it. But by the time that happened, the heat was able to transfer through the steak all the way through and, and to cook it all the way through. The, you know, the least desirable for a butcher to eat a, a cut of meat like that. Gotcha. So good knives, some meat knives, and then a grill that can get you the, the right heat. Right. Are the two, be the big essential things. All right, let's talk about some of the, the things you hear about meat. You talk about this. Why should people avoid 
frozen meat? Like what happens to meat whenever you freeze it and then thaw it and then cook it? Well, if you know where the source of meat is, there's nothing wrong with freezing meat. I don't like frozen meat because traceability, it, 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 it all depends. If you're to buy frozen meat, why would anyone want to buy frozen meat when meat is readily available in America seven days a week? And the reason that I don't like frozen meat in that regard is because when you freeze meat and then defrost it, you'll notice so much more purge, so much more of the natural juices are escaping and they're in that package when you defrost it. So frozen meat, it's very questionable as to traceability as to where it's from. And then it does lose some quality. If, if it didn't, my life would be a lot easier because everything we make, we would make it ahead of time and freeze it and ship it. But it's just not the way it is. The fresher the meat is cut to include dry aged meat. So now we're talking about aged meat that's been aging for 45 days. If that's portioned and then eaten within a few days, that's the best steak you're ever going to eat. If you were to take that meat and freeze it and defrost it and then cook it, you you lose a lot of the good, great qualities of, of what was preserved. That, that's just natural in the freezing process. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. All right, underwear. It's an often overlooked piece in your wardrobe, but it can make all the difference in comfort. So I love Saks underwear. They've got their patented ballpark pouch, which does, as you probably imagine, it does. Keeps everything separate down there. No more chafing, no more sticking. This is especially useful when you're in the gym. Very, very great. Saks is also making a big difference in more ways than one. They're partnering again this year with the Movember Foundation to create awareness and support for men's health. They're offering their special Movember limited edition collection with their Vibe boxer briefs that has a fun mustache print. And for every pair of these sold, Saks will donate $2 to the Movember Foundation, helping to fund critical men's health research. It's such a great way to do something good for yourself and support a great cause. So right now, Saks, along with this Movember Foundation limited edition underwear, they're giving my listeners a very special limited time deal. Get 20% off your first purchase. You have to go to my special URL. So go to saxunderwear.com slash manliness. That's Saks, S-A-X-X, Saks with two X's, underwear.com slash manliness to save 20% off your first purchase. Remember, check out the Brave Don't Shave collection, saxunderwear.com slash manliness. All right, so if you guys are looking for another podcast to check out, one I'd recommend is The Art of Charm. It's an interview-based podcast. They do some other things there too, but the host, Jordan Harbinger, he brings on guests from a wide variety of fields, psychology, business, you name it, there's there. And what he does, he extracts useful information from these people. And one guy he had on, really interesting, his name's Paul Bloom. And Paul Bloom was making the case that empathy is terrible. We should actually be against empathy. Jordan, what's going on there? I thought empathy was a good thing. Yeah, I did too. And you know, this guy was quite convincing. And he talks about why, well, first of all, what empathy is and whether or not we believe it's good. And there's this sort of interesting conundrum we have, especially in the West, where we're like, oh, well, we have to be empathetic. And it's like, well, no, not really, because this professor at Yale, Paul Bloom, says, look, we sometimes ignore these larger problems, or or actually, we ignore large problems to focus on smaller things because of empathy. So so there's all this bias that empathy can toss into the system and it ends up fundamentally flawing the way that we think about problems. And so we talk about why we evolved empathy, the differences between empathy, sympathy, compassion, why this matters in decision making and how we can actually control for empathy in our decisions. So this was something that surprised me because I thought, how could empathy be bad? I don't find this convincing at all. And then I read the book and I was like, actually, 
there's definitely a case to be made that empathy is not necessarily a good thing. All right, so check it out, theartofcharm.com. I'll search for Art of Charm on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you can listen to podcasts. And now back to the show. Let's talk about aged meat. Like, what what are you doing there? Like, what does aging beef do? And why does it taste so much better than just cooking it, you know, when it's fresh? It's dry aging beef is really controlled decomposition of the meat. We were making sure that the meat does not get rotten as it would normally in 60 days or 120 days is the max that we go by making sure the variables in the room are correct. That's wind circulation, that's temperature, and that is the humidity, keeping the humidity down in the room. What we're doing is letting the collagen that holds the muscle fiber together really break down. And what it's leaving behind is something that's got a lot more flavor than as it, than when it was fresh. It's kind of like uh, trying to pick up a water balloon with, with two fingers. You can do it with a dry-aged steak. A fresh steak would be more like the water balloon where it's, it's drooping down. So very much like uh, you would broccoli, Rob, is a good example in produce where we're trying to get the moisture out so we kind of put it in a saute pan with some olive oil and cook it for a while. What we're doing in the dry aging process is, is making a lot of that water come out of the muscle group. And there's plenty that we have to shave off when we're ready to portion that product. So anything on the exterior is removed. But what's left behind is an enhanced beef flavor that is so much tender, so much more tender, I should say, and so much more flavorful than when it was fresh. Gotcha. And is this something that people could do at home or does it require a lot of uh, fine tuning and using you know, special equipment to get the right, the right conditions so it ages properly? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's almost impossible to do at home unless you had a refrigerator that was dedicated to that and one in which... You could read the internal temperature of the refrigerator and the humidity. The humidity has got to be controlled. And we have several systems that take the moisture out of the air. So it's very difficult to do at home. It's nearly, nearly impossible to get it right unless you have a very small amount in a refrigerator and you were able to read those, those, um, the environment. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the, what you would normally get if you tried to do it at home in a refrigerator, because a refrigerator is a natural dehumidifier. Any refrigerator has water that it expels and that water it's expelling is from inside the, the moisture that's inside the air that gets on the coils and gets drained out or in some refrigerators it is evaporated off the top Uh, it's still not enough to keep up with the amount of water that's in the muscle of of a whole loin let's say so it's it's not worth your time you can make prosciuttos at home that that that's something that's controllable but dry aged meat more times than not, it, it would rot on on anyone trying to do it. And uh, speaking of rot, like how do you know when meat is bad? Because there there have been instances where I have meat, and it's been in my fridge for a few days, and like 
it's kind of turning gray and I'm like, is this still edible? And then I throw it out. Then sometimes I think, well, maybe I shouldn't have thrown that out. It was actually good. So how, is there any telltale signs that you've got some rotten meat and you shouldn't consume it? Oh yeah. I, I laugh. I, I, I laughed at what you were describing. I know exactly what you mean. So the best way to see if meat is still good because the, the turning gray is not a problem. That's oxidation. It's going to happen. Oxidate. If you were to make fresh ground beef right now and form it into a patty and put it in your fridge, the next day, if you were to break it open in the, in the middle, it would be turning a darker brown and you would wonder, wait, is this still good? And then would eventually turn to a grayish color. All of that is fine. That, that has to do with, with the oxygen and oxidation. The best way to tell if meat is good or not is by it not being a brightish green color, which is obvious, right? But but beyond that, smelling the meat. If the meat smells good, most likely it is good. So I myself, as a butcher, have taken steaks home and put them in, in the fridge. Then you're like, oh, I forgot I had those steaks in the fridge five days later. Well, all you have to do is open the package and smell the meat. If the meat still smells good, it's good. And um, no one really explains it like that, but that is the best way to tell. So as a butcher, you're a professional here, what do you think is the most underrated cut of beef? The most underrated, probably flat irons, especially for the price. So flat irons are from the front shoulder, um, they're from the clod and more specifically from the top blade stake is, is exactly where it is. And it blindfolded, it tastes the same as a New York strip steak. It's about 25% of the cost of a New York strip, but you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two. The striation and the muscle is, is the same. The marbleization is the same and the flavor is the same. And when you find things, you know, cuts of meat like that, that, you know, to have a New York strip steak experience at 25% the cost, it's a great economy cut. Wait, what's crazy about these economy cuts though, sometimes they get really popular and then like they're more expensive. Cause that happened with flank steak, I feel like a few years ago. For a little while it happened with hanger steak and then the hanger steak came back. So hanger steak is the butcher steak because it's the only muscle in the entire animal that you need to remove before you split the animal. So on the assembly line, as the animal is eviscerated and the hide is removed, it's then split. You have to pump the brakes for a second and remove by opening up the actual cavity it could, because the hanger stick is on the inside and it hangs from where the kidneys are. So you need to remove it first before you split the animal or you'll damage it. And it's not symmetrical like every other muscle in the animal or in any mammal. The hanger steak is about two-thirds as big on one side and the other third on the opposite side. That was a steak that was not, be, not easily marketable by a butcher like because they never thought of taking it, taking it out first. So when you got it, it was after the animal was split and it didn't really look much. You couldn't make many portions enough to sell to one restaurant to put on a menu, but it had a lot of flavor. And butchers would then take it home 
or throw it into the ground beef mix, one or the other. But when it was discovered how much flavor it had and the breakers would start to remove it before and they were able to get enough of them to sell to someone like myself who could then portion them into usable steaks, they became very popular and doubled in price for a while. They've since come down a little bit, but that's an example of an economy cut that got more expensive than 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 uh, I would say something comparable to it. Right. So a flat iron steak, most underrated. What do you think is the most overrated cut of beef? The most overrated cut, I guess, I think, is anything that re- that's re- referred to as sirloin. Nobody knows what the heck sir- sirloin is, but you know, you'll, you'll put the TV on, and there's that commercial for surf and turf, and it's some sort of seafood and a sirloin steak. Oh boy, oh boy! But no one knows what the heck sirloin is. A sirloin steak does not have much flavor at all. It it it's it's part of the love handle of of uh, of a steer. It comes from the top butt the peeled knuckle or the flap meat, one of those three muscle groups, anything cut out of one of those three muscle groups is considered sirloin. But retail butchers seem to throw that word around a lot. And that's why I think it's the most overrated because real sirloin steak is not much of a steak at all. Gotcha. Okay, I'll remember that next time I go out to eat. Don't confuse that with strip loin. Okay. So strip loin steak, very different from sirloin steak. Strip loin is a New York strip from the back. What is sort of the characteristics of a New York strip? That's the classic steak that that that's the L part of the T-bone. You know, that's the steak on that side. So that's from the back. There's a finite amount of them per animal. And that's where I said earlier about 24 steaks for those two strip loin pieces. It's one of the more expensive cuts and it's gotten center cut strip loin has no they call them vein stakes but it's really a nerve that runs through got no sinew or nerve that runs through any part of the steak so that you you have this great steak experience so when you eat the best steak of your life it'll most likely be a ribeye or a strip loin that's been aged and is prime and domestic so maybe you can answer this question um my friend has asked me about this. I have no clue about it either. You are a purveyor of meats to New York City steakhouses. What's with New York City steakhouses serving big, thick strips of bacon with steak? I don't really see it anywhere else. I only It's only in New York City. What Do you know what's going on there? I, you know, some say it's, it's the classic cut. I think I'm along the lines. I'm on your side on that one. I'm not really sure why that is. I've asked my elders about that very question. And they said, well, why would I want to eat bacon before I eat my steak? I'm not sure. So I think you have some traditional New York City steakhouses that have been doing that forever. And a lot of clientele have gotten accustomed to that. So it has become a tradition. And I've been to many steakhouses in which get my guests have ordered bacon to come out before the steak as an appetizer. 
And I, I really, I, I'm, I'm, it does, to me, it doesn't seem to fit, but it's not for me to, to decide. It's just for me to provide. So, okay, that's weird. Okay. Well, it's, a, it's unsolved. Let's we'll get that guy from Unsolved Mysteries on it if he's still alive. So let's shift gears to, to pork and we'll, we'll um, end there. What do you think? What do you think is the most overlooked or cut of pork from folks that you think, it, man, if people really embraced it, they would get a lot of enjoyment from it? I, I think the pork butt. So the pork butt is the pork shoulder. In beef, it would be the chuck. Why it's called butt is because they used to be stored in big containers called butts and shipped up to Boston. So the pork butt or shoulder is very tender. So with a pork butt, it's very inexpensive. So to slice one-inch steaks from a pork butt is really just as good and tender as the center-cut pork loin or pork chops. So, I mean, it's, it's such a versatile cut where if you wanted to make pork stew all the way to a pork steak, I'd make it from the pork butt. You'll have a number of muscle groups that you're cutting through, but they're all tender. And I think that's the big takeaway from a pork butt. I like that. Well, hey, Pat, where can people go to learn more about the new book? Well, the book is on Amazon. And if you wanted, anyone wanted to know more about the book, you can go on to our website, lafrida.com, and there's there's more information there about the book. The book is really was really crafted and made with a lot of careful time to to really show where each steak or each cut comes from and its different characteristics. So in that regard, some companies have bought it for their entire staff that are in the meat business just to use as a guide. And I find myself using it as a guide when I'm trying to explain to a chef what, where certain cuts come from and what's good about them and not. It's a great guide, but again, it's available on Amazon and to learn more about it, my website's a great place to go. And that's well, Pat LaFrieda. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me on. My guest today was Pat LaFrieda. He's the owner of Pat LaFrieda Meat Purveyors. He's also the author of the new book, Meat, Everything You Need to Know. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at LaFrieda.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash butcher, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you've done that already, I'd really appreciate if you'd recommend us to a few friends because that's how most people find out about the podcast. As always, I appreciate your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. <laughs>